I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I feel like I should be preaching on Noah and the flood today, of the rain. My son Jacob recently got a job uh, as an intern at a computer programming firm, and uh, a few weeks ago he found a bug in the program he was working on, took it to his boss. Now is that good news or bad news for his boss? Who has gone, taken their car to the shop because something is going wrong with the car? Every time you turn it on, it does this certain thing, and you know it's wrong, and you take it to the shop, and you go to show him, and of course it doesn't do it. <laughs> it's so frustrating. Or who has felt that there's something going wrong medically with themselves, and they go to the doctor? Who wants to go to a doctor who says, well, don't worry about it. I don't want to tell you any bad news. Just go home. You'll be okay. We want to go for not feeling well. We know something's wrong. We want to know that the doctor can identify it, know what's going on, explain it, and that there's a cure, and that hopefully he will say to us, that's a simple cure. There's a medicine for that or a therapy. You'll be well in no time. Well, the same thing in our gospel reading today is to remind us that sin is a part of the good news. The acknowledgement and the identification of the sin in our lives or in the world is a necessary part of the good news because we identify what's wrong and we have a cure and we can make it better. Someone wrote a book a number of years ago called Whatever Happened to Sin? We don't really talk about sin much in the church. We don't want people to feel bad. But if sin is operating in our lives or sin is operating in the world, we need to know about it and do something about it. Somebody pointed out, a wag pointed out that as people abandoned the confessional, we started to populate the couch of the psychiatrist. The Times of London a number of years ago posed the question to its readership, What's wrong with the world? And the briefest response was from G.K. Chesterton, who said, Dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. This morning's readings in Zephaniah and Mary's song and Philippians are all, are all wonderfully positive readings, full of consolation and celebration of victory and joy. But we look around at the world, and we read the newspaper and watch the news on TV, and we realize that the world is in something of a mess. There's great cause for anxiety, frustration. So how is it that we can still hold on to hope as Christians? How can we have faith that it's going to be okay? How can we celebrate Christmas as a season of joy? Well, the, the gospel reading for today strikes a much different tone. I'm going to ask you to turn to it in a minute. It ends the passage with the phrase, so with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. He begins his message, though, by saying, you brood of vipers, who warned you about the wrath to come? And he continues on with this rather harsh tone and grim predictions that one stronger than him will come and gather up the wheat and his fork, his threshing fork is in and it will burn with unquenchable fire. 
What kind of good news is that? I can understand why the church stops talking about it. Well, if you would look at the uh, gospel passage in your bulletin, follow along, I'd be grateful. Uh, but just let me set the stage. It's in from chapter 3 of uh, Luke's gospel. If you have a Bible with you, you can actually look at that first uh, six verses. He sets the stage. Luke announces John the Baptist has come, and he puts it in time and space. It's a physical reality. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, Herod Antipas was ruler of Galilee, his brother Philip, ruler of Iturea and Trachonitis, Lysanias, the ruler of Abilene, puts it in as very much in the context of what's going on in the world. John's proclamation came into a world that was violent, divided, uncertain, occupied by a foreign power, filled with terror and displaced persons and struggles for power. Not unlike our own world today. But he then goes on to talk about how John comes as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. So John comes and gets their attention. Now remember he's speaking to people who have come out to him. To be baptized by him. And he says to them, you brood of vipers. And our church wouldn't be very full today if when people came to our church trying it out for the first time. (laughs) He's urging them, though, to get ready. And he gets their attention with graphic language, as one commentator says, deliberately harsh, so as to awaken them to a sense of the realities of their situation. Who warned you to flee the wrath that is to come? These people have come to John for baptism. Does he suspect that they've come insincerely? Or does he expect that they've come thinking that the mere ritual of baptism will allow them to escape the wrath to come? Baptism, it says in the preceding verses, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance is authenticated by good works. And in the coming verses, we'll see it's outlined in terms of love and compassion. Verse 8 says, bear fruit. What we believe should bear fruit in what we do, how we live our lives, what we say, how we spend our money, how we spend our time. It's meant to make a difference. And he says, do not think to say or do not presume that Abraham is our father. He's saying that your genealogical lineage won't matter. It's a matter of the heart, the repentance of the heart. Last week I wasn't here. We went down with our confirmation class to Lord of the Streets and to uh, the Beacon. The new executive director of Lord of the Streets is a man named Steve Capper. And he told a wonderful story about how he had come to Christ and was very zealous, tried to be excited about it and tell others about it. He joined Young Life, and through Young Life got a mentor, an older person who tried to guide him and help him. They would meet together regularly for discussion and coffee and prayer. At the end of every meeting, his mentor would say, Steve, what can I pray for you about? And every time, Steve would say, 
please pray that my family will also come to know Christ. Every time that was his prayer. One day his mentor called him up out of the normal cycle, said, Steve, I need to have coffee with you. He met with him and kind of with tears in his eyes, said, Steve, I need to tell you this because I love you so much. Every time you pray for the conversion of your family that they would come to Christ, I need to tell you, you are the biggest problem from that happening. You are condescending, you are arrogant, you don't spend time with your family, and when they ask you to do something, you have an excuse. It was a very hard thing for him to hear, but it was true. And he was able to turn his life around to model it much more after the Lord Jesus and his family did come to know Christ. Well, the crowd that heard John responded, what must we do? So let's look at verses 10 to 14. The crowd said, what must I do? He begins by saying to be generous to the poor. If you have two coats, give one. If you have more food than you need, share it. And so that it's a response of generosity. Our bishop, Bishop Andy Doyle, his last book, talks about the church and a generous community. No one could have walked through our narthex today with that feeling that we are a generous community, that angel tree is fantastic, that we do share what we have. And then the tax collectors get in on the act. What must we do, teacher? And he says you must behave with restraint and honesty. The soldiers say, and we, what should we do? He says you must resist the temptation to abuse your power. And in today's news, we see too many examples of people who have abused their power. What can we do? What can you do? What is your faith in Christ calling you to do? I love the fact that we're a St. Francis community. And there's been a recent book by a, net by name, a man named Paul Moses called The Saint and the Sultan, The Crusades, Islam, and Francis of Assisi's Mission of Peace. In 1219, in the midst of a disastrous Fifth Crusade, Francis crossed enemy lines to gain an audience with al Kamil, who was the Sultan of Egypt and a nephew of the great Muslim warrior Saladin in his camp on the banks of the Nile. Francis, who opposed the warfare, hoped to bring about peace by converting the Sultan to Christianity. He didn't succeed, but came away with the peaceful encounter and seeking to live together. Now these good works are not meant to replace baptism, nor are they meant to replace a forgiveness of our sins that we attain only through the cross of Jesus Christ. Baptism is an outward sign that one has repented and opened themselves to the salvation that Jesus offers as a gift. And the good works are meant to be a demonstration that this salvation is real. But good works do not earn salvation and neither does baptism. It is merely personal faith in Jesus Christ. But when he bestows that gift upon us, he calls us to a new life, to be a new person, to experience a new reality. And the last few verses in 15 to the end, he begins to talk about this Messiah. People are wondering, is John the Messiah? He speaks powerfully 
He speaks truth. He is not afraid to speak his mind and heart. And the verses immediately after our gospel passage are Jesus coming for baptism, which we'll get to in a minute, and then him speaking out against the ruler of the day for his moral or his immorality, where he ends up in jail, and you know that he then ends up losing his head. Jesus has come. We are preparing to celebrate Christmas. He came to live among his people in this dark and dreary and dangerous world. He came to be here. And he will begin his ministry by submitting to John's baptism, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus submits himself to that, which I think is a foreshadowing of a much deeper identification with us as he takes upon himself all of our sins on the cross. He continues that identification as he bestows upon us the gift of the Holy Spirit and in the sacrament as he invites us to his table that we might take him inside of ourselves. And so he comes, one who is more powerful, one who is worthy, one who will bring a winnowing fork in his hand to gather or burn, one who will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so in our preparations for Christmas, that special and wonderful liturgy, those children, the gifts, the ambience rich with peace and harmony and goodwill, let us not forget about the realities to which they point. A God who came to be with us long ago and has promised to come back, this time as judge in glory. Let us not lose our expectation that our celebration of this Christ child should transform our lives and be salt and light in this world. This is the good news, that we acknowledge that something is wrong in the world. Something is wrong with us, and we call it sin and rebellion against God, but we can embrace and experience his solution, which he offers to us, and that we must do what we can to prepare ourselves. Advent is about preparation, to demonstrate that we who claim to have faith in Christ can and will leave lives, lead lives that are generous and ethical and upright, and that we will unabashedly proclaim that there is sin and darkness in the world that comes from a self-serving rebellion against God, but that the good news is that there is a cure, forgiveness and salvation through Christ. We can be people of hope, people of peace, people of joy, people of faith, and people of love. People, let's get ready. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.